Welcome to the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. My guest today is John Woolard. John is a senior fellow with the World Resources Institute Energy Program and the former vice president for energy at Google. Uh, John is uh, in the West Coast somewhere, I guess in San Francisco. John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Lawrence. Good, be, good to be here. Um, I first met you when I was visiting San Francisco and this uh, commentary that you have written Beyond Renewables, How to Reduce Energy-Related Emissions by Measuring What Matters was just sort of a gleam in your eye. Um, it's been a kind of a long journey to get it written down, but I wonder if you can give our listeners in a nutshell the core idea as you shared it with me when we met. Why is it important to measure what matters? What does that mean? Yeah, I, I think sometimes uh, in the effort to deal with climate change, we forget uh, what we really should be focused on. And so there's been a very admirable effort. I was part of it uh, worldwide to build out uh, renewables, and they were a good early start. Uh, I led a company that built some large solar plants, and then at Google, we invested quite a bit in renewables, about $3 billion, and uh, catalyzed about three gigawatts of, of investment. But the more you look at it, the problem we're trying to solve is not really a lack of renewables, it's that we have too much carbon. And so if you start to look at carbon as the problem, and carbon is what drives uh, climate change, it's what is going into the atmosphere at, at very uh, record-setting historical rates, uh, you need to focus on the carbon problem to minimize carbon, and renewables are part of a the solution, but they're certainly not all of it. They've got some challenges with intermittency, and while they can be helpful, uh, just focusing on renewables does not really solve the carbon problem. Here at WRI, our energy program has uh, been very much a part of this promoting renewables, making the case for renewables. And uh, in the time that I've been here, I've seen quite a number of blog posts that have said renewable energy costs are falling, uh, renewable energy production is uh, rising. So I was frankly a little shocked when I saw one of the charts that's in the commentary. I have it in front of me, and I, I urge people to go to WI.org and uh, look for the commentary by John Willard. It shows the growth in energy demand and uh, if we think of this as a sort of a sedimentary rock, you know, the bulk of the rock, uh, even out as late as 2018, 2019, is oil and coal and then gas. And then there's a little bit of nuclear and maybe a little bit more hydro. And then the wind and solar is a little tiny sliver at the top. I just I found that really shocking for all the progress we've been reporting with renewables. And they they're important and necessary how does it happen that we're still so reliant on oil and coal? Well, think about what people do every day and what they consume, and you can trace most of that back to components of this chart. So um, we consume a lot of goods that, while their apparent footprint when they show up with Amazon Prime looks fairly small, their actual, the manufacturing process, the industry behind them, is all has a, has a significant uh, environmental footprint to it uh, and even down to the transportation to get that to your door. So 
We've got to deal with transportation, which is primarily oil. We've got to deal with industry, industrial heat, cement. It's not just that use uh, at the residence, which is a very small piece of this, but it's across the whole economy where we use massive amounts of energy and the majority of that still comes from fossil fuels. So uh, whereas wind and solar are, and electricity is a key part of what we need to do to change, uh, we need to attack it systemically across all these categories and uh, really think about how we get rid of and displace coal and oil as the largest two emitters. That's what drives about 78% of our carbon uh, challenges in the world. In the commentary, you contrast the experience in Germany and the United Kingdom. And one of the phrases that has really stuck with me, I think those of us who are on the, you know, following climate policy with a fair amount of attention, um, we remember when Germany attained a huge amount of its electricity uh, from renewables. I think in a particular day, they got to 100%. We know that Germany is pretty cloudy. And so I think many people who are in this space would think Germany is a renewable energy hero. But you say that after all this time, Germany's wound up being a country that has high renewables, high energy costs, and high carbon emissions. Um, unpack that for me. What does that mean to be have high renewables, high energy costs, and high emissions? That's clearly not the outcome that the Germans were hoping for, and it's certainly not the outcome we're hoping for in the world. Why did that happen? Yeah, well, while it's not the outcome anybody was hoping for, and, and clearly the Germans were well-intended in everything they've done, it's a very uh, important uh, lesson to learn uh, from or, or example to learn from because what Germany has done is focused on renewable energy and not really focused on carbon. And in doing so, they've attained a suboptimal goal of having massive amounts of renewables uh, you know, they've had up to 85% in any given day, uh, maybe even closer to 100 now. That was back in 2017. It was around 85% from renewables. Uh, meanwhile, their carbon content has been growing. So why? What's been happening? One, they're uh, getting rid of nuclear power. Nuclear is zero carbon. It's reliable. It's got uh, lots of attributes. It was a fairly significant contributor to uh, what to Germany's low carbon power for a while. And as you take that off, uh, they're having to replace it. Renewables are intermittent. So there's a lot of coal uh, that's getting leaned on uh, for reliability inside of Germany. And really what you've got is coal and gas replacing nuclear uh, with renewables being built out, but they're intermittent. They only run in Germany uh, probably less than 30% of the time. And so in dealing with that, those challenges, there's more fossil fuel, there's more emissions, and they haven't really focused on the right objective function, which is how do we minimize our carbon output? Contrast that for me and our listeners with the experience in the UK, where, as I understand from talking with you and reading the commentary, they have focused much more on the 
emissions per unit of electricity. What does that mean for a country to set that as the standard and how does that result in a better energy mix in terms of emissions? Yeah, so the UK is a great uh, example to contrast with Germany, and I think we can. Uh, it's very instructive. Uh, the UK really focused on carbon. They said we want to minimize our carbon, and so I think the best metric that I tended to use was just grams per kilowatt hour. And the European Union is around three hundred. Uh, Germany is about fifty percent higher, around four hundred and forty. And the UK really starting in 2012 or so has dropped its emissions uh, 30 or 40%. And now it's down to 240 grams per kilowatt hour. So they have a lower carbon content in all the electricity. And they've been able to do it by focusing on uh, really going back to that, that earlier exhibit with the coal and the oil they focused on getting rid of coal. They said coal is a big uh, contributor to, to carbon. Let's work on how to get rid of it. They've done uh, efficiency. They've done renewables, uh, primarily wind. And, but they've also used natural gas to uh, get rid of their coal. And you don't have to use gas all the time. You just need to use it when the wind's not blowing. And that combination has been very effective for them and really made significant progress at a much lower cost. They kept their rates low as well. This is such a striking story of two countries in that, uh, you know, both of them obviously had coal miners. They had coal companies. They had special interests. Um, this is beyond the scope of what you address in the commentary. But I can't help but wonder, do you have any insights into how the UK was able to do this? Was it that the mines were already mined out and these people are already unemployed when they made the transition? Or did they approach it politically in a different way than Germany that was able to um, overcome the, uh, the special interests around coal? Well, the, in Britain, they really focused on the objective of carbon and the economics of the solution. And then they did have uh, various ways to help transition uh, coal, but not, you know, in both countries, uh, not all of it is done locally. A lot of it is just imported coal as well. Uh, and so some of it's local, some of it's uh, remote. But at the end of the day, uh, focusing on the economic solutions and working on ways to get things, because if it's economic, it can get done today uh, and can get done fairly quickly. So the UK was able to move fairly expeditiously and I don't claim to be the expert on the, the job transitions and that side of things, but I understand that they did a very a good job there of, of working with uh, labor uh, on other jobs and retraining. Fascinating. Um, in the commentary, you also share a little bit about the experience um, at Google, which uh, like some other big tech firms committed to 100% renewables, uh, got there and looked around and said, maybe this isn't where we need to be. Can you tell us that story? Uh, sure. It was, it was also a very uh, uh, useful experience and, uh, you know, comes in uh, as, as a building block of, of how to understand these issues around carbon and renewables. When I first got to 
Google, they were very focused on renewable uh, solutions and renewable energy. They had uh, signed PPAs, power purchase agreements, with multiple solar and wind farms, and were looking at being 100% renewable uh, with a matching of basically annually of all of the energy they consume with all of the contracts that they would have for wind and solar on an annual basis. Uh, we started a very robust internal dialogue, and of course at Google it was really matched with quite a bit of deep analysis saying, well, what is, what are we doing here and what are the, how do we measure it and is renewables really addressing the carbon problem? And the answer was uh, somewhat. It's helpful. It's a good thing, but it's certainly, and we've published this in in blogs uh, subsequently, that uh, it's a good start, but it certainly is not the whole, does not address the, the entire challenge. And so Google started to look at how to start to solve for carbon and even how to make their renewables or make their zero carbon content match hour for hour because a data center runs 24 by seven and wind and solar do not uh, blow 24 by seven. So they came out with suggestions saying we should invest more R&D in dispatchable zero carbon power that this was really important to, uh, to work on things like advanced nuclear, CCS, that we really needed to do this because getting to 100% renewables, which Google did in 2017, was just a, uh, an early milepost in a very long, very long journey. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons I think we titled this we titled this commentary Beyond Renewables because renewables are clearly a critical piece of the story, uh, necessary but probably not sufficient. Absolutely. I, I think that's a really important point. Uh, you know, renewables can make up 60, 70% of a, of a portfolio, depending on what country it is, what resources they have from a solar and a wind perspective. So they're massive building blocks. And energy efficiency, I always want to come back to, is absolutely critical and will deliver, uh, could deliver a similar, you know, a third of the ultimate uh, carbon savings that we need to accomplish over the next several decades. Uh, but they're not, they can't solve everything. So you can, you want to maximize efficiency, you want to build as much solar and as much wind as you can, but you also want to acknowledge and recognize what they can and can't do. And we need to focus on uh, other sources of zero carbon power that are dispatchable because things like storage are in a way, um, are, they don't actually help you. They solve a problem of, of not matching supply and demand, but they don't generate new clean energy uh, and they just add costs. So um, we've got about five minutes left. You end the commentary with seven recommendations. You say taken together, these seven actions can produce meaningful results. I'm going to give you about 30 seconds per action. We're going to do a lightning round here. Um, first, I would say it's, it's important for our listeners who haven't read the commentary yet to realize that the overarching chapeau here is the measuring what matters, to set the goal of reducing the unit uh, the amount of emissions per unit of energy. 
But then these specific seven steps are sort of, if you've set that goal, what are the things you're going to do to bring the bring that number down? Uh, the first you've touched on, increase energy efficiency. Um, can you unpack that a little bit? I, I'm interested. You know, efficiency, a lot of people think efficiency is pretty boring. You put it at the very top of your list. Yeah, to me, efficiency is the, the, the we should always do it. We should keep pushing, and it is probably one of the best tools in our toolkit because if you think about it every time you uh, drive efficiency with a more efficient uh, lighting or HVAC you eliminate the need for not only the solar wind or something to power it but also the storage the backup everything is reduced one for one so efficiency is um, there's a lot of potential there uh, in the in the paper there's a, an analysis of the cost effectiveness of what we've done with LED lighting, which just drives efficiency and decreases the need versus something like rooftop solar, and which is producing more power, um, and yet it's intermittent. Uh, I think it was $7 a ton for energy efficiency, might even be lower than that. Uh, that's I've gotten some pushback that that number could actually be negative. And uh, rooftop solar is $360 a ton. So efficiency is 18 times more cost effective and it really addresses the carbon issue uh, directly and immediately. You know, I might insert here a little ad for uh, Jennifer Lakey's work on building efficiency. One of the things we do in our energy program here, as you know well, is the building efficiency accelerator. And I was quite interested to learn from that work that although companies and building owners will always make back their money when they invest in efficiency, that the price signal alone is not enough to do it because of a certain path dependency. It's like, I'm reasonably comfortable here. Things seem to be working pretty well. The fact that the costs are high over time is not going to get me out of my seat to increase efficiency. And so this building efficiency accelerator, as I understand it, is to really help building owners and people who are building new buildings to um, identify and implement the advantages of efficiency. I was just quite struck that the the market signals alone, if, if, if the market signals were going to do it, it would have happened already. Yeah, yeah, that, I, absolutely. I would encourage everybody to, to, to look at what work that WRI and others have done on this. Uh, efficiency is a, while it's a great um, tool, it's a complicated one to drive through the system. And it's generally done through utilities and PUCs, and we should do more of that and, and push those efforts. It's a market externality in a way. Now, having said that market signals won't do the job for um, efficiency, I see that your second point is harness the power of markets to drive down emissions. That's your second recommendation. So markets can do a lot. What part of the market are you talking about here? Uh, Really, wholesale markets that are that are well functioning will will push out the less competitive generator, and right now the least competitive generation is coal. So, if you look in the U.S., it you know PJM is a great example of a market where they have shut down uh, significant coal plants throughout PJM. Uh, it's been done with a combination of wind and gas, and so not only are you uh, shutting down coal plants that might have run 80% of the time, but your gas plants that you're replacing them with only have to run sometimes 30 or 40% of the time because you can bring wind on as well. Uh, 
wind is lower cost, wind and gas combined are, are lower cost than coal. And the markets make that transparent and accelerate that change. So you've gotten very quick change in those markets. Whereas where you have uh, protected or you know interest, uh, that tends to keep some of these high carbon emitters and inefficient plants online longer. Great. Uh, your third point, continue to build wind and solar plants at a significant scale. What more would you want us to know about that? Well, I just want to reinforce that it is, we've only begun. Uh, we haven't built, whereas we've built a lot. Uh, so far, I believe it's only about 10% of, uh, of the U.S. right now, maybe 12% uh, of its energy. So uh, we need to keep moving forward. And one of the ways to keep moving is to make sure that it is backed up and firmed with other sources of power so that you can keep the lights on and build more wind and solar. If we don't do those two together, it'll slow down the progress. So, but we can build, wind and solar are cheap, they're affordable, and we can build them at meaningful scale. They're also very financeable. So the financial community has come in and invested significant sums in building these, these low-cost sources of, of energy. I think we've pretty much covered number four, recognize that renewables can't do it alone. What's the big takeaway there? Well, I think there's a great example in California of where renewables are inexpensive, and yet the renewables in California would not, we have 10 gigawatts of solar that come on and off the system every day. And think of a gigawatt as roughly the size of a coal plant. And that happens because we have gas plants that can ramp, move up and down very quickly. If we had waited for something like uh, cheap storage, we wouldn't have all the solar we have. So renewables need to be integrated. The system needs to be flexible. And we need to keep investing in battery technology to get it less expensive. But we also don't want to wait for that. We need to keep using other flexible resources um, and acknowledge that wind and solar are intermittent energy. Don't hide, behind, hide, hide from it. Embrace that. It's good, cheap, intermittent power. But then let's have other assets that are as low carbon as possible to help keep the lights on. Your number five is the most controversial on the list. Keep operating existing nuclear plants and keep the door open to new ones. And... Uh, to be transparent, that was not without some controversy even here in the building. The Union for Concerned Scientists came out maybe three, four, five months ago uh, with the report. Uh, UCS, of course, has been the leader in campaigning for nuclear safety. Uh, but they came out and said, given the urgency of the climate uh, situation, that the United States should not be shutting down nuclear plants uh, for economic reasons, should be keeping them alive. And WRI, in a departure from our previous view of not opining on nuclear, put out a statement in uh, supporting that recommendation. You went a step farther. I should say the commentary is only your personal view, uh, and said keep open the door to new ones. Why do you argue that? And many people in the environmental movement cut their teeth on the anti-nuclear movement. So this is uh, going to be a difficult one for some people to swallow. Yeah, well, first, let me reinforce the need to keep the 
existing plants open and, and actually compliment UCS and, and WRI and others that have really been thoughtful on this issue. And if we, you know, right now in the U.S., uh, we've built 178 gigawatts of renewables that and it runs about 30% of the time. So in the last decade and a half, we still haven't built enough renewables to replace just our existing nuclear capacity. So these plants, 100 gigawatts of capacity staying open is absolutely critical to our maintaining zero. It would take us all the work we do in the next decade if we shut those down and we wouldn't make any progress if we built, if we tried to replace that with renewables. So keeping it open is key. The next piece is why should we consider new uh, nuclear power? Uh, if, think of it as a, a diversified portfolio is always better. So uh, whether it's some sort, you know, new nuclear, uh, carbon capture and sequestration, uh, any zero, I, I, it, we should be technology agnostic, whatever the safest, uh, most competitive, uh, and most reliable and lowest cost way to eliminate carbon. And generally, it's what you call in the financial community, there's a radical term for it called a balanced portfolio. If you have just two stocks, wind and solar, you're going to be in trouble. But if you have multiple things that are not correlated, you actually get a, uh, and nuclear is a big part of that, uh, it's like owning bonds in your portfolio. It reduces the overall cost, and you can do it now safely. And a lot of the new technologies are are should be deployed and explored. And uh, it's happening in the rest of the other places in the world, South Korea and China. Uh, the U.S. should focus on it, or will be left behind. You touched on the word I was wanting to ask you about, which is safety. I think the example of Germany, they shut down their nukes after the accident in Fukushima. I mean, it didn't come from nowhere. There was a terrible nuclear accident in Japan. Uh, people were very frightened of nukes, uh, perhaps for good reason. Um, what's your view about safety when you see keep the existing ones open and maybe build new ones? Do you think it can be safe now? Absolutely. And safety should be uh, at the top of the list. I think UCF, U Union of Concerned Scientists was clear about that. And I think that uh, rash anybody rational proposing new nuclear needs to be focused on safety. Some of the new designs are uh, much safer than uh, any in the past. And yet the ones in the past have performed for 30 years. We haven't had a single... Uh, uh, incident we in the United States we had a what you might call a uh, a shutdown at Three Mile Island but nothing uh, it was it was well executed um, it's been very safe here with good engineering and it can be safe with good engineering we've got just two more uh, number six is a little technical but maybe I'll give you uh, half a minute to explain it create a robust transmission network. Yeah, I'll, I'll try to make it as simple as possible. A, a transmission network is like having a robust interstate highway system. If you want to move things around, you need as much transmission as possible so that you can get, for example, uh, we have a lot of solar in California and we're going to have to start curtailing quite a bit of it. That means just not using it at all. If we could move that solar to other areas of the country and maybe even share it with Midwest wind, we can take some of their wind when we don't have sun and they can take our sun. So 
having the ability to move uh, some of these intermittent uh, sources around expand dramatically lowers cost and uh, enables many more of these diversified assets to come on. So you just want a, a large network and the larger and more interconnected, the lower the costs are and the easier it is to, to move energy around through the country. Your final point is wrap-up investments in frontier technologies. I think this is something people across the political spectrum agree on. I've noticed in the Republican responses often, even the oil companies will say, well, invest in new technologies. Uh, obviously, that's good. In the framing of your piece, you say, we have to invest, but we can't count on them. We've got 10 years to uh, bring emissions down quickly. We should bank on what we know works. What are the technologies in your list that really need development? Well, there's a category that is very important, uh, which is to look at dispatchable zero carbon technologies. That's That and robust transmission would do the most to decarbonizing and advancing the pace of decarbonization. And I can't uh, push the pace enough. We have to do uh, quite a bit in the next 10 to 15 years. That, that's when a lot of the most important decisions are made. Uh, but then once we've built out a lot of renewables, we need to then have technologies ready to, to attack that really difficult last 20-30% of this problem. Uh, so carbon capture and storage is, is really important to, to explore whether it's from a natural gas plant and you capture the carbon at the end, uh, or it's direct air capture, which is another, uh, could be a very important backstop technology. Almost all of the scenarios that you look at for global climate mitigation to get to two degrees centigrade include uh, negative carbon. So it could be anything from improved agricultural processes that can help sequester carbon in the soil, capturing carbon from power plants, but having dispatchable uh, fuel-based plants that can be zero carbon, uh, anything on the biofuel side that actually helps. And then once again, nuclear, uh, to make sure that we have advanced, safe, dispatchable nuclear power as well. Those are the, the key categories I would focus on. John, I'm going to end here. It's always a pleasure to talk with you. I remember when I first met you in San Francisco, for me, a lot of this was new, and I think you've produced just a tremendous piece. I want to encourage our readers to, our listeners, to find it and read it and share it. Um, you mentioned staying within two degrees. Of course, we know from the report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change last year that two degrees is not really within the realm of safety, that to avoid catastrophic impacts of climate change, we need to get to 1.5. And I think we need to do this in a way that is not ideological. We need to be looking at all the options and you have laid them out so clearly here. Um, I think for some of our friends on the left who have been campaigning for 100% renewables, um, these are gonna be some new and difficult ideas, but the stakes are high. And I think that just as we would um, challenge people to um, remake the economy and remake societies, we may have to examine our beliefs around the uh, what it's going to take to get there. Well, thanks, Lawrence. If, if, if it's okay, I'd like to make one last uh, uh, point that didn't come up through the discussion, um, which is, as you look at 
what we're really trying to accomplish, we focused a lot on the power sector, but uh, the transportation sector is also uh, very important. And to decarbonize that, you need uh, zero carbon or low carbon, but also affordable electricity. So that's one reason I'm very focused on how to make all this affordable and as low cost as possible is because we need to make sure that if, 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 think, if rates are really high in the power sector, that slows down our transition for an equally large sector, which is transportation. So that link is important, and that's why I tend to focus more and more. The deeper I get into this, it has to be zero carbon, but it also has to be at low cost so that we can attack some of these other uh, large, emit emission, large emitting sectors as well. Uh, an important point indeed. Thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Thanks, Lawrence. This has been the World Resources Institute podcast. I'm Lawrence McDonald. My guest today is John Woolard. He is a senior fellow in the energy program here at WRI and the former energy vice president for Google. Um, he has written a terrific commentary available on WRI.org called Beyond Renewables. I'm scrolling to the top here to get the title, Beyond Renewables, How to Reduce Energy-Related Emissions by Measuring What Matters. Until next time, I'm Lawrence McDonald. Thanks for listening.